0: Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Belonging. In this episode, a DEI practitioner's perspective. Tanya, Angie and Mary Ellen speak with Yusuf Sakir, Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at Davis Wright Tremaine. Yusuf shares his own journey into the DEIB space. I just opened a bunch of not only physical doors, but mental doors, spiritual doors for myself. The ways in which he invites colleagues into that space. I
1: can't operate under this false notion that everyone should already kind of be where they need to be on this. I know that they're not. And that's okay as long as I'm willing to acknowledge that and try to figure out what I can do to bring them along with me.
0: And the way in which he has developed his firm's approach to DEIB.
1: It works if it's fully embedded across the way that the firm thinks, the way that it operates, the way that it's managed.
0: Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya martinez Galanucci.
2: Welcome back to Building Belonging. We are so happy to be joined by Yusuf Sakir, who will be sharing some gems and knowledge on finding belonging as a DI practitioner. And I have to say, for very selfish reasons, I'm looking forward to having this conversation because I'm a baby practitioner. As you all know, I just started my official practice with an official title. I mean, I've been doing this, what feels like my whole life, but I'm now doing it officially. And so I am just, I'm here to absorb it all and learn from you. I'm so excited to have this conversation. So let's jump in. My name is Tanya martinez Galanucci. I am the executive director for Odeeb, and I'm going to hand it over to Angie.
3: Hello, my name is Angie Avila. I am the development and communications manager with the office. I'm going to throw it over to Mary Ellen. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for OD, our guest today.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Yusuf Zakir. I'm super excited to be here. I think to start with, I think I'm going to learn more from you all than you all learn from me. So thank you for having me. I'm the Chief DNI Officer at Davis Wright Tremaine. I've been at DWT for a couple of years, but I've been doing DNI work for about eight at uh, three different law firms. Prior to getting into that, into the work about eight years ago, I also practiced law for about five years as a litigator and also as a judicial law. This work has been a part of my life too, from the very beginning. And it's something that I'm grateful to be able to do and grateful to be able to talk to you all today.
3: So Yusuf, the first question that we're going to ask you is part of tradition. This is a Year of Belonging, so you want to know what does belonging mean to you?
1: I'm glad it's the Year of Belonging. I hope it's the sort of the you know, forever commitment to belonging because I think it, it never should end. When I think about what it means to me, I think of it in a whole bunch of ways. I think about support. I think about security and safety. I think about acceptance. You the easiest way that I visualize what belonging means to me, in my mind at least, is I use an example of a Venn diagram. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a retreat for attorneys of color and LGBTQ attorneys in Chicago, where we brought people together for a couple of days. In that retreat, we had a panel discussion about what it means to create success in an institution while maintaining and sort of amplifying your identity to some degree. And that discussion of belonging came up. And so the way that I see it is, is a Venn diagram, right? So you sort of have two circles, you have sort of your personal identity and your professional identity. And those two circles overlap like they would in a Venn diagram. Really the goal, right, for me, the goal of belonging is how do you get those two circles to overlap as much as possible, ideally sort of completely overlap, right? And the reason I brought up that panel is that we had some folks on the panel who were more senior in their careers. They had been on this journey to figure out how to get those circles to overlap. And they had gotten to the point where they had perfect overlap. And you had younger folks uh, on the panel who were not there yet, right, Who that, where their overlap was a lot thinner, and they had their sort of personal identity and professional identity stretching a little bit. One of the things that we talked about is that the best way to ensure that you're happy in what you're doing, that you're sort of succeeding professionally in a way that's comfortable for you, in a way that you belong, right, is to push those circles as close together as you can. And that's not on you to do, right? That's also on the organization or the people around you to allow for you to do. We had one of the panelists was a young Black woman, and she's kind of given me permission to share this. We were talking about those identities and talking about the the two circles and the Venn diagram. One thing that she said is that she feels that in the legal industry, in the peer circles that she's in and the folks that she works with, you know, she's sort of seen as being Black first and then being a woman second and how that perception influences the way she thinks about those two circles in her Venn diagram and what people think of her when they perceive her and how she's still working on coming to embrace the fact that that's sort of the reality that she's in right now, but it doesn't need to be the reality sort of going forward. And all of those intersecting identities can be valued, can be respected, but that's really, again, not on her. That's something that is on us to create an environment of belonging that's on all of us. So that's something that I think is the way that I visualize it is really with the Venn diagram.
2: I love that analogy. And one of the things I love about it is that I think everyone has that Venn diagram. Whether you come from a marginalized community or not, you have to navigate what your professional self looks like the second you step into a professional (laughs) setting. What I think is the nuance behind it and where we come in in this work is saying, well, not everyone's Venn diagram is that flexible. Not everyone's diagram is going to allow for the overlap, and it's much harder to get that overlap, even a little bit. I mean, that's the work. That's what we do. That's why we do this. Absolutely.
1: And for some people, you kind of walk in to an organization with a much tighter overlap, and others, it's way thinner. And so that's an equity issue as well, where you're sort of starting on day one with two very different experiences about how you feel and how you belong which sort of changes the starting line for people when you begin the race.
2: Absolutely. And then thinking about the historical context of where professionalism comes from and what informed it. Think about that. And we think about the rules of professionalism. And I'm thinking back to our conversation with Leah Goodrich. There are rules and standards in place where so much of our communities have never even had a say. The culture that's being reflected in professionalism isn't a universal culture. It isn't even agreed upon universally. Professionalism in Japan looks different from professionalism in America, which looks different from Mexico and so on and so on and so forth. One of the things that I find a little bit challenging in these conversations is first telling folks, hey, guess what? This rule, this professional rule that you're sticking so hard to is a preference. (laughs) This is your preference. This is not set in stone. This is not the only way to do things. And it's definitely not the most inclusive way. So very interesting insights.
1: I agree with you. I mean, I'll just share one anecdote on that. I remember waking up one morning where we were in some city, I can't remember which city, and I was about to head into a work meeting and sort of woke up go through the regular waking up routine, right? Where you're brushing your teeth, you're kind of getting yourself ready right in the mirror. And I remember looking at myself thinking, boy, like I gotta do a lot more to kind of fit into that preference. And I'm getting really tired of it. And I think one of the, the, that exhaustion element, it weighs on you, right? It weighs on you and after a while, until you have the chance maybe to put that weight down, you don't realize how heavy it is that you've been carrying.
2: Ooh, that's, that's real. <laughs> I, feel like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it leads into some, our, our next question, but I, I mean, I feel you, you're absolutely right. The exhaustion it takes to fit into that professionalism, that idea of professionalism, it's not visible to everyone, you know, and you're saying it took so much work. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work is? What did you have to do?
1: <laughs> it's difficult. This is part of why I do this work at the end of the day. I, going back to kind of my days of practicing law, I remember sitting around in conference rooms, sitting around in meetings and looking around and realizing no one in the room looks like me. No one in the room has a name as unfamiliar as mine. No one in the room unfamiliar in the current setting, right? And so I tend to overcompensate. I overcompensate because at, at the time when I was practicing lie, I was overcompensating. Now I think I'm grown in that as I got to do this work. The easiest example is sort of when you go to a meeting or let's say a professional development thing on a weekend and the dress code is casual, I'm wearing business casual, right? Like I'm, I'm not dressing casually because as soon as I do that, I know that people are going to have a particular perception of me. I'm bald, I'm brown, I have a beard. So anytime I go onto a plane... Uh, I'm smiling ear to ear at everybody that I see to help them feel okay uh, with me being on the plane with them. I know that that's ridiculous, but it's- It's It's not ridiculous.
2: It's not ridiculous. (laughs) What's ridiculous about that? This is your truth. That is absolutely right. And the second you said that, that I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. And
1: what I mean by ridiculous is it's ridiculous that I have to do that.
2: Exactly. That's what's ridiculous.
1: It's ridiculous that I have to do that and I feel compelled to do it. But I know that there are ramifications if I don't. And I know that every time that I go out to work or I even go out to the you know grocery store, I am a representative for people that kind of look like me. Yeah. When I know that that burden does not fall equitably across the board. And so that's why I got into this work, right? I, uh, after Practicing year after year after year, realizing that I know I'm not alone in this. I know there are others who are feeling that same weight that is going to slow them down in their progress against the, sort of using the race metaphor, right? So first, the starting lines are not the same. Two, you're being asked to carry a whole bunch of weight. So clearly that's an equity issue and it it results in equity in access to opportunities, inequities in access to information, to social capital, to the sponsorship relationships that you're able to form with folks at the firm or at any organization. And so all of those challenges, right, continue to change the way the race is being run. And that doesn't need to be the case.
3: Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and where you grew up and just how that was and how that maybe molded and shaped you?
1: Absolutely. So I'm first generation sort of lawyer, first generation professional, first generation high school graduate, first generation college graduate. Any kind of way that you want to define first generation, I'd probably check. That box. My parents immigrated here from East Africa. My I was born in Kenya. My mom was born in Zanzibar, which is a small island off the coast of Tanzania. They immigrated to Canada in the 70s, which is where I was born. I was born in Toronto. I am still a proud Canadian, although I'm a dual citizen now. So I, I'm proud to be both. And so I grew up in an immigrant family and growing up sort of in a place where uh, at the time, right, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of people of color, right? There weren't a lot of people who looked like me. So those experiences, like I said, Antonia, like you talked about at the very beginning in your introduction, sort of started at birth. And so you're learning to navigate how to deal with these sort of circumstances and how to survive in these sorts of circumstances. I left Canada after university, moved up to the, to the U.S., did a bunch of you know, odd jobs here and there before heading off to law school. Again, because I was first generation, right, kind of going at this from scratch and trying to figure out what exactly needs to be done. The best kind of example of inequity and access to information. You know, I remember signing up for law, taking the LSAT, applying to law school, Got into a few schools, didn't really know much about any of those schools, looked at websites, tried to figure out kind of what looked the best, although they all say a lot of the same things and ended up at a school and thought, okay, like I got three years to figure this thing out. And then hearing sort of the chatter about OCI and 1L grades and how in a year I'm going to be interviewing for jobs that will define the rest of my life based on two semesters of Study that I've never done before. And I was like, okay, like that's uh, good to know. And I, I got lucky because another way I got lucky is I got a pro, I got a scholarship to attend a, a Barbary, I don't think it was a Barbary at the time, but it was a law preview diversity scholarship program that now is run by Barbary. And that is a kind of one week boot camp that you get before law school that just gives you a sense of like, okay, here's kind of what you're going to learn in contracts, towards, uh, con law. Also, here's how to take a law school exam. Here's how, why 1L study matters. And that was a, it was a diversity program that I got lucky to be admitted into. Not everyone was admitted into that. So already I was coming from a place of lack of access to information that did give me a head start in that race, right? And I was able to kind of figure out very quickly that, oh, but I need to learn how to succeed in this 1L year if I want to succeed in the rest of my life, according to this system that exists right now. I got lucky all the way through in that extent and I was able to get a good job at a good firm. And then back to that kind of situation I mentioned before, started practicing law and realized that there were major equity challenges that nobody except me oftentimes seemed to be able to see, but I knew that I wasn't alone in that.
2: I can't believe how much our trajectories overlap and reflect each other. Not only the first gen part, because the first gen part, Obviously, we both talked about that, but even just the luck part. And it's not only in law school, right? And this is why I I laugh at, at the idea and, and the people who still believe that we live in a society that's a meritocracy, because I'm only here today in this position. I've only literally like climbed out of poverty because I was lucky. Yes, I'm smart. Yes, I'm a hard worker. Yes, I did all the things that I needed to do to get here. And so did a bunch of other people who weren't as lucky as me. And there's so much talent that's not being tapped into because they were not lucky, like you and I. And that's part, again, yet another reason we do this work. But the way that you reflected on on what it was like as a practitioner, and we need to get, we're going to get more into this. That's I have some follow-up questions on this because this is what I'm interested in too. That's how I felt. I'm like, is no one else seeing this? Is no one seeing the hypocrisy in me being a lawyer and having to fight this hard to be seen as a person? It's wild. So thank you for sharing that.
1: I feel you. And this is another story that I tell kind of every once in a while that relates to the element of it. When I was in high school, I had no real plan about what I was going to do next. I remember sitting in the library one day. Some of my classmates were you know, working on their college applications. And I kind of peered over their shoulders, kind of asked them what they were doing. And I said, oh, okay. And so I I pulled at the time paper application, right? It wasn't online at the time. I pulled the paper application. I sat in the library one afternoon, filled it out, wrote a bunch of essays. I didn't even proofread it. I didn't have anybody even look at it. And I sort of put it in the mail and thought, probably nothing's going to come of this. And I got lucky again. I got into university. I did attend a university after high school and had I not sort of been randomly in the situation where I got some information that helped me decide that this is something that I wanted to try, even though I didn't try it very well, quite honestly. I mean, who submits essays without like reading them or have somebody else look at them? And at the time I didn't realize that other people were having them you know, edited and vetted by a team of experts, right? And so you, not everyone is going to be that lucky. And that's really unfair. And and so
2: I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I was going to chime in and be like, but you didn't know you had a review because that's, I can't tell you how much of my life I spent writing these essays. And again, I was a straight A student, valedictorian three times in my life, right? But I would write these essays, hand them, and I didn't understand what editing and review looked like. How would I know that? I'm first generation. My parents never had to do that. My teachers didn't necessarily teach me that, obviously. I learned it later in life. When, and now, you know, I couldn't even imagine not sending something while someone looking at it or reviewing it. I mean, my husband reviews my emails. You know, it's like, it's that, you know, it's literally that. But this is exactly the cultural capital that can be missing. And it's no one's fault necessarily. But we have to be better in thinking about what are the resources folks need to actually create the equity that we're trying to achieve. Completely agree. I think we've touched on a lot of the why transition to
3: DEI work. So I want to throw kind of a curveball and go off script a little and ask, how did you transition to DEI work?
1: Again, a bit of a stumble and a bit accidental. I didn't know that coming out of law school, right? I didn't know that DNI was a profession, and I think at the time in law firms, it probably really wasn't. And if to the extent that there was DNI efforts in institutions at that time. They were often done sort of by somebody else who had another role. So, you maybe had somebody in professional development or somebody in human resources who sort of had as part of their portfolio diversity. So, I coming out of school, I didn't have any, I didn't even know that this was a space you could work in. I practiced for a number of years. And to the credit of the firm where I started, which was I was a, an associate at Latham and Watkins, they were very, very willing to let me. Raise my hand for things when it came to my interest in this space and to say, hey, like, this is something I really care about. Like, this is something that I think is impacting me and others. Like, what can I do about it? And they said, do whatever you want and we'll be here to support you. And you can submit your ideas and we'll consider them. And a lot of the ideas they considered and actually did implement. And so I was finding that I was like, oh, this is, I'm enjoying this. I'm finding that I am wanting to spend my time doing this. And I'm spending more and more of my time doing it. So year after year after year, as I was doing it, I thought to myself, can I just make this a job? (laughs) And so I had the, again, trust in relationships with some of the folks at the firm where I worked. And I was able to confidentially share with them my interest and say, hey, this is something I really think would be interesting for me to do. If there's something that comes up, please consider me for it. Maybe six to 12 months later, something came up and there was a role in the diversity space. And I interviewed for it. I interviewed sort of on the other side of the house. They put up sort of a wall so that nobody knew I was interviewing for it. And I was lucky to get it. And so again, (laughs) A thread of luck runs through a lot of my storytelling because it's quite honestly true. And so that was where I initially got my feet into the door in the space and then did as much as I possibly could to self teach and learn. And a lot of the self teaching was reflection on your own experiences and then realizing how there are themes and lessons and principles that you can learn from your own experiences that have a commonality with others. And so, self teaching. And also just, you know, reading as many studies and articles as I could get my hands on. And that's how I kind of taught myself to operate in this space.
2: Again, just so much, so much overlap. I can't help but think, wow, that is so good that your firm reacted that way. That they said, oh my gosh, here's a need that's not being met. You're trying to do it. You know how you're doing it. You know what to do. Let's let you do it. That is not the case everywhere. That's not and and I'm, I just want to highlight it because you're right, it is luck. And I've seen, I've experienced, I've heard of stories where people step up to do this. Because like, like you and me, we got into this work out of necessity, right? We were in these spaces and there were needs that were not being met. And so we rolled up our sleeves and said, well, if it's not me, <laughs> I don't see anyone else doing this. And sometimes, like in your case, people welcome that with open arms which is the right approach let let your your talent help you and in other cases we hear people kind of getting reprimanded or silenced or being like this is not your job or in my case I I was pulled into an office and threatened once it can literally be that but we persist we do it and then we beget, we people start noticing and people start acknowledging And then it kind of snowballs. That's what happened for me. You know, in the very beginning, I got the pulled into an office. But by the end, it was, let's call Tanya into the room. (laughs) What does Tanya think is going to happen? But you're absolutely right. Like so much of it is just like reading and learning. I I used to say that my hobby was reading about organizational psychology (laughs) and racism. Like that's that's what I read about all day long, every day. So it's great to be able to do this. But I hear you. So much of what we've Learned comes from us just finding the way, learning everything we can about it so that we can address a real need.
1: I completely agree. I remember a couple of things that resonated with me with what you said. I mean, it was a personal and professional necessity to have a commitment to DNI. like that was a survival mechanism. But to your point about self learning another thing I remember now, it's all kind of flooding back to me. The last couple of years of working as an associate at the firm at Latham, like where they allowed me to kind of do this work. I remember getting up at like 4.30 in the morning and spending an hour and a half each morning writing a chapter a day on diversity related thoughts, issues, challenges, opportunities based on the research that I was doing. And I think to myself now, one, that was really early in the morning, two, the fact that I found joy in doing that, I think, was telling to me that uh, this is a space that you need to kind of find your way into. And so the third point that resonates with me and also in some ways troubles me about what you said, those organizations that shut the door on this will not survive. They may be around in the short term, but they will not survive in the long term. So that's to their own detriment if that's what they do.
2: I sure do hope so. (laughs) (laughs) no I think that's that's absolutely right and I I you know it's one of the things that with hindsight and time and and therapy (laughs) I've gone over in many many ways but it's one of those things where it's just wow I had to fight so hard I had to fight so hard to do not only something that was needed but something that was helping me and brought me so much joy. And I'm so glad that you bring that out because it took me a really long time. I want to say like two years to get over the fact that I wouldn't be a practitioner anymore. That was hard. You know, we worked really hard to go to law school. And you just describe all the challenges we had to face. And let's not even talk about the debt, especially when you're coming from zero generational wealth. Like, I'm still in debt and I'm trying to leave this. Like, what am I thinking? Am I crazy? But I had an amazing coach, an amazing coach who really helped me identify the self-limiting stories I was telling myself. And you're right, when there's joy, you find the energy, you find the time, and it fills your cup. And it was just so clear to me. I was just like, This part of my job where I'm just being a lawyer and a litigator, while I'm good at it, like, let's not, let's not play. It wasn't that I was a crappy lawyer and that's why I went to DI. No, I was good at it. I'm a good manager. People like to work with me. Like, I was good at it. It just was killing me. The hours were killing me. The culture was killing me. The micro and macro aggressions were killing me. Having to fight to be a human, to just bring myself, was killing me. And then when I was doing the DI stuff... I had community. I had joy. I had laughter. I had fun, and it didn't matter how many hours it was because it was fun. I agree. Joy brought me to DEI. <laughs> my own joy. Absolutely.
1: I remember when I was to your point about sort of what it felt like to leave the practice, right? Something that you have been you spent a lot of time on, spent a lot of money on, climbed over a bunch of hurdles, and I remember you know talking to family and friends, like my parents in particular, but others too who were trying to convince me not to do it, not to make the switch because this was eight years ago now, right? So eight years ago, it's much different now even, but even eight years ago, people didn't know what this space was. I was being cautioned that you are significantly narrowing your path and that you're closing a bunch of doors. Looking back now, that was bad advice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yep. it's, not, it's not their fault. They, I think they were basing it on the, Facts at the time, but looking at it now, it's like I, I just opened a bunch of not only physical doors, but mental doors, spiritual doors for myself that I now have the good fortune of being able to walk through. And that is completely irreplaceable.
2: Amazing. So I'm going to start digging into my selfish questions because, like I said, I'm a baby. I'm a baby in the space. And I want to know how you found belonging in the space because. As we both mentioned, finding belonging as a lawyer was tricky, and if we found it or not, we didn't even get into it well let's let's start there. Were you able to find belonging as a lawyer? I would
1: say yes, ultimately, but it it didn't happen automatically. It takes a lot of effort again, it's one of those things where you are spending time and energy that maybe not everyone has to spend time on to find that belonging, but that really touches on on building community and so finding colleagues who are who understand you who are willing to support you how you are and finding those mentors and i was lucky to work with a number of folks that i you know worked on on, on my billable matters with who were my mentors right they were not like me right in any way and so that's not necessarily finding people who are exactly like you but it's finding people who are aligned with you and and allies, allies of yours these folks were willing to staff me on their matters were willing to trust me or willing to give me responsibility that wasn't a given. You know, when you when you, you work at these big law firms, right? At the end of the day, you're working with a handful. It's kind of funny whenever people ask me, what's your opinion on X law firm? I said, I don't have an opinion on X law firm. It depends on ultimately like the five people that you're going to be working with, yeah. right? <laughs> the five most amazing people or they could be the five worst people. And so that's going to be something you're going to have to figure out. We try, obviously, at an institutional level, especially at DWT, to make sure there's a consistent threat across the board. But- I also know that there's a reality of that some teams are going to be better than others, particularly if you come from a traditionally underrepresented background. And so as a lawyer, I found my pocket. It ended up being with a small group of securities litigators who were willing, securities litigation of all places, but who were willing to kind of take me under their wing, take care of me, mentor me, sponsor me. And that's how I found my belonging as a lawyer.
2: Similarly, my, my belonging came later. Later in my trajectory, closer to the end of my time, I don't think it's coincidence that I found my belonging when I found my voice, when I was really able to embrace my authentic self and was just like, this is it. Like, if if you don't want it, say it with your chest, (laughs) you know, like, go ahead and tell me. (laughs) But I am not going to hold back. I'm not going to make myself small anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. The response was actually really positive. People Liked my authentic voice. One of the biggest compliments I got was from one of my mentors and sponsors, who loved to death, miss, miss dearly. But after oral arguments, he pulled me aside and he was like, "Not only did you kick ass, but you did it in your authentic voice." And I was like, "He heard it. He knew it was me. Like you know." And it was just like, "I finally made it." And then that's when I was like, "Okay, got a dip." But (laughs) really. It really was that like when I finally did find my pocket, like you said, because let's be real, it is a pocket. It's not like I was walking around the whole firm doing this, right? But when I found my pocket, it was magic. And it's it's, like intoxicating. You're like, I want to be that all the time. I want to be myself. And that was my transition into DEI, right? So now my question to you is, so you told me about being a lawyer. That makes sense. Please tell me about how how do you find belonging as a practitioner
1: yeah and before i respond to that i just want to say you found your pocket where you're able to push your circles together and you said i'm pushing my circles together now right and so take it or leave and so good good on you yeah kudos to you on that so as a practitioner it's kind of interesting first a bunch of different thoughts one on the venn diagram example there's closer overlap for sure but I wouldn't say there's still perfect overlap. I'm not there yet on a personal, I'm still on my own personal journey on that. Two, I think it's important to find, obviously, a, a network of people that do this work, because oftentimes you're going to be one of a handful or sometimes in organizations, one of only who's doing this work. And so you can oftentimes feel like you're talking to a wall. One one organization that I'm very proud to be a member of is the Association of Law Firm Diversity Professionals, just the ALFTP for short. And that organization has grown into, I think, what is now maybe 250-ish law firm diversity professionals who do this work across Canada and the U.S. And so that's a community. Pre-COVID, we used to get together once a year. We have chapters in sort of different cities. I have my the L.A. chapter that we get together monthly for calls and quarterly for in-person meetings, roughly. And so every time we sit together, especially in person, a lot of it's just commiserating quite honestly, about some of the things we've seen. Can you believe X, right? And sort of working through like that and allowing ourselves a little bit of putting our guard down when we think about this. I also think mentors, right? Finding mentors in this space, which I had to, again, craft from new. And so I, I'm lucky now to have a number of mentors, not only in the legal industry, but who do the work in other industries who are just sounding boards for me to throw off ideas, to just get empathy when I feel that I need it. And then those mentors also can exist in other verticals in an organization too. So whether that's a department that's professional development or marketing or recruiting or HR or whatever, you can find sort of allies, mentors in other places who are willing to sort of put their guard down with you and make you feel that you belong.
2: That's amazing, and thank you so much for being vulnerable with us and and sharing that you yourself don't even feel like your Venn diagrams are overlapping even now. And I appreciate that because, like I said, my Venn diagrams are definitely not overlapping right now, four months into the game. But I do think that
1: got this. It's gonna be all right. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I've had to do the Venn diagram work a lot in my life, so I knew that this was coming. But I do think, to your point. And and to what we're saying right now, I think people sometimes forget that as DEI practitioners, it's not over for us. We're not insulated from the very stuff we're combating on a daily basis in our professional roles. And sometimes we're literally gritting our teeth and smiling in, in our professional hat to sort of process and move on and think about how we're going to deal with this as, as the person and the practitioner. And I, I wonder if you have any advice or insights on that, because I will tell you, it's something that I'm navigating right now. And it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to navigate it when you are kind of expected to be the voice on the matter.
1: It's definitely not easy to your point. And I think there's a few reasons it may be the case. One, right, when you think about our transition specifically that we're talking about here, which is lawyer from lawyer to D&I professional as lawyers traditionally generally speaking you are looking at the past to guide your future right so you're looking at precedent you're looking at how it was done and you are making sure that you set up your guardrails in a way that you don't do things in a way that the boundaries of the law don't allow you to do and as a dni professional your job is to break boundaries and so it's literally the opposite training I'm now comfortable to the point where I don't, where I'm totally fine with that. But Mm -hmm. I have to also convince all the other people in my organization who are still working as lawyers, who are trained in a particular way, to think in a particular way, that what we are doing here is actually more design thinking and more kind of trying and failing than you are going to be used to doing when you're writing a contract or when you are preparing a brief, right? You don't have really the room to fail on that one, right? You don't have, you can't design think brief. You can't go to the judge and be like, what do you think of this idea? No, not cool. Okay. Let me try something else. Yeah, that's not going to work. Right. But when it comes to this space, you have to be able to do that. The other thing you really have to be able to do is be vulnerable. Again, that's really hard to do with a legal professional background and with legal training. In fact, it's probably antithetical to some degree, to be vulnerable. You don't want to be vulnerable, for example, with opposing counsel, right? And so you have to be able to kind of split your mind up in a bunch of different ways. So that way you can be vulnerable when you need to be. And when you can't in, in a setting where you're, for example, the opposing counsel situation, you're able to kind of put the relevant guards up. But you have to be able to kind of put on a hat, take off a hat and kind of keep going. And that requires a, a lot of training. We had a really, I'll just... Touch on a really good example that just happened recently. So we do this. I'll talk a little bit about our DNA work later. But we, as part of our, some of our training uh, modules, you know, we have this what we call a deeper dive. So after we've kind of, uh, we've gone basic uh, DNA related principles, we try to action that stuff and we try to put it into reality. And we come, we present them with a bunch of hypotheticals, all things that have really happened either at our organization or other similar organizations, and we ask people to break down those hypos with Using an IRAC legal analysis, right? So, <laughs> what, what what issue? What's the issues? What's the rule that applies? The rule being, what kind of DNI lens applies to this? How do you apply it? What's your conclusion? And so, I'm using a framework that they're familiar with, but in a, for a different way. And we just had a session just earlier this week with a smaller group of people, and the vulnerability on that call, by the vulnerability of people being willing to mm-hmm. talk about what they've seen, how they respond, the challenges that they face, to me was a a perfect example of how you can engage in this work as a lawyer without hurting your ability to practice law.
3: Yeah, that really resonated. I was thinking about, you know, when we had open forums and it was just co-workers were were vulnerable and it was just such a moving and impactful meeting. So similar similarly to how you found belonging as a DEI practitioner, can you elaborate on how you are building Belonging as a practitioner. Now, stay with me because this is a- so. First, I'm going to ask you to start with how you're bringing in marginalized folks into this work and giving them a sense of belonging.
1: There's two ways that I think about this. One is more traditional kind of community building elements, similar to kind of the things that I was building myself as a practitioner, as a as a, as a, as a legal practitioner, as a DNI practitioner that I'm up with in that build affinity groups. Right, are common, right, and that many organizations have them. I still think. And, you know, it's up for debate, right? Still as to whether or not organizations should have them. I still think they're incredibly powerful. And I still think the community that they allow to be built, the platform that they give to people, especially if you use it in a way that is productive, that's collaborative, that's connecting people, that's allowing people to have that safe space that is grassroots driven is powerful. And, you know, on that point, I mentioned earlier the the attorneys of color and LGBTQ retreat that we just recently had a couple of weeks ago. In Chicago, it was two and a half days, bringing together about 130 of our lawyers for an opportunity to build that community, to build that sense of belonging. I remember kind of the opening night of the reception. This is a lot of people, because of the pandemic, a lot of people haven't met a lot of their colleagues in person. And I remember walking into the reception on the first evening and you could feel the energy in the room. It was like palpable energy of people feeling that they belong. You know, if I had sort of like a a radar to, or a scanner to be able to sense the level of belonging in the room, like it was at a hundred, and we that led into sort of more substantive programming. The next day, we had the panel that I talked a little bit about earlier. We engaged in sort of obviously social activities to be able to kind of get people to again be vulnerable with one another, and we kind of closed with a a session on community building through goal setting. So that was run by an outside consultant named Rudir Christel. and the community building through goal setting session really revolved around how do you, what are our goals, right? Individually as a community, how do we stay accountable to one another? How do we walk out of this room and these few days, going back to our offices, to our practice groups, whatever, and not lose this and actually build on it and build on that community? That's kind of one part of it. The other part of it, I think, is thinking about the growth that I talked about earlier, right? Like how people climb in these organizations and reducing the sort of element of luck, and increasing the element of equity. So Mm -hmm. how do you ensure equity and access to opportunities? How do you ensure equity and access to information? How do you ensure that sponsorship relationships are being formed not only organically, which are often formed on the basis of affinity bias, but actually being being formed in a way that are disrupting the traditional ways in which they are built? How do you build a place in which people are not being written off? And being written off, for example, for the simplest of mistakes, especially those who are from traditionally underrepresented groups who have to, who walk a tightrope to begin mm-hmm. with, have to prove themselves over and over to just to be considered average. We try, and I we try at our organization to address that, to mitigate it, because we know what happens in our industry. We know that there's limited room to fail in our industry, and that limited room is even more limited if you are from a traditionally underrepresented group. So how do we address that? So that way, again, we replace luck with equity and the end result, right? At the end of the day, I I do think that representation begets representation. The more representation you have in the organization, the more representation that you'll continue to have. Those are some of the ways that we we sort of work on belonging for traditionally underrepresented communities.
3: Amazing. So now what about the people who are hesitant that don't want to be a part of the work or just don't know how or where to start?
1: I'll tell you, like at every organization that I've worked at, right, there is going to be a percentage of people, not, I don't find that to be the majority, but I find that there is a percentage of people who either, to your point, don't want to be part of it and don't, or don't know how. I think they don't know how crowd is big. Oftentimes, you know, people will come to you and say, I really want to help. I just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so my first question usually is like, what have you done? So far. And so let's start there because kind of where you start is going to define where we can continue. I think education is part of it. Getting to know people on a personal basis is something that's really important to me. I'm not here to finger wag at anybody. I'm not here to patronize anybody. I'm not here to make anybody feel that they're being judged. I am going to try to meet people where they are. And I sometimes I don't like that saying, right? Because it's sometimes you know, but what, you know. Why do you have to go to those places anyway? But the way that I think about it, right, is that I want this person to get in the car with me and come along for the ride. That means I might need to go pick them up. And so, if I can convince them that a it's okay for me to pick them up, two, it's okay for them to get in the car with me, then we start rolling. And sometimes it's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of traffic, and or sometimes the road's going to be free and clear. But I, I know that everyone has a different starting point on this. I wish that wasn't the case, but. We see this in our country, right? We see this in the way that some of these ideas are polarized. Some of these ideas are being used as weapons. I can't operate under this false notion that everyone should already kind of be where they need to be on this. I know that they're not. And that's okay, as long as I'm willing to acknowledge that and try to figure out what I can do to bring them along with me.
2: And that in a nutshell is the hardest part of the work for me, frankly. And, and I, you're absolutely right, right? Like there's people who, I need to just be like, OK, maybe this is not the person I want in my passenger seat, but I need I need this person to get in the passenger seat because we all need to be doing this. And so it's it's the hard part. It's the part where, again, it's probably where you're doing a lot of the smiling <laughs> behind, with like the pain behind the eyes. It's just like, OK, got to Keep working with this person. There are also people who you're just like, you know what? on my next round, I'll try to pick you up. I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna keep driving. I'm gonna get that other person who seems ready to come in the car and I'll come back for you and You should call an,
1: Uber.
2: call an Uber. Yeah, call an Uber, call an Uber.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's some people also who are not gonna get in the car. And I don't think, it, I, I think it's a very small percentage of people who are not, especially in the fields really that we work in and in the institutions that we sort of work in. And if that's their decision, that's fine. I just want to know that I asked. And if I know that I asked, I kind of know that I did the best that I could.
3: That was amazingly put. All we can do is ask.
1: And then I just tell them to download the Lyft app. So that's
3: fine. (laughs) (laughs) City bike for them. (laughs) So before we wrap up, I wonder if you could just kind of briefly discuss DWT's four pillars of DEI. And for the benefit of our listeners, those pillars are community growth, education, and engagement.
1: You got them all Mary That's, that's amazing. And uh, all my colleagues at my firm know that any opportunity that I get, I'm going to be talking about the four pillars and, and so it's become kind of not only well welcome, but also a bit of a running kind of joke that they know that that's what I'm going to do. And I'm fine with it as long as they know that that's what we're talking about. And that's how we're going to align our thinking when it comes to the DEI at the firm. So first starting with the vision. What we're trying to do is build a culture where all talented individuals, right, including those who are traditionally underrepresented in the legal profession, can have and can see a path to success. And so you have this vision and it has to sit somewhere. And the way that we've positioned it is we sit it on four pillars. Like you said, community growth, education, and engagement. Community is how do you foster that sense of an inclusive culture. Growth is how do you ensure equity and access to opportunities. Education is how do you elevate people's knowledge and consciousness individually, collectively, collectively. And engagement is how do you collaborate with external stakeholders, including our clients, including the New York City Bar, for example, and other organizations that do this work. How the work manifests, it sits within each pillar. And I'll briefly describe it. The one thing to start with is that we make sure like, to cut our four pillars across the way that our firm is managed. So that way, this work is sort of an arrow that cuts across the verticals of our organization. It only really works if it's done that way. It doesn't really work if you're going to Put D and I sort of in a silo somewhere and say, you know, give them some resources and maybe some people and say kind of good luck. Doesn't work that way. It works if it's fully embedded across the way that the firm thinks, the way that it operates, the way that it's managed. To DWT's credit, right, they've put their money where their mouth is. I have a team of seven people, including me at a firm that's about 600 lawyers, which is, you know, really tremendous. And I have a report to the managing partner, which also it makes a tremendous difference in the work that we're able to do. But to describe how the pillars actually manifest, you know, so community, and this is such as a lot of what I already discussed, but community is where our affinity groups live or where our staff employee resource groups live, our office level DNI initiatives live. Growth pillar, right, is where practice group, Efforts live our practice groups in our firm are really where a lot of key decisions about growth are made. It's how it's where evaluations happen, promotion decisions, all of that is sort of happens within the practice groups. So we cut DNI specifically within each of our practice groups. Each practice group has its own DNI committee that focuses specifically on issues and opportunities and challenges within the group. Within the growth pillar, too, we're talking about our pipeline development efforts, right? The the build up of the diversity of the pipeline that all the way from sort of college through. Law school and college is not early enough, right? It should even be earlier, but building that pipeline. Also within the growth pillar is what I call sort of DNI at the table. Me or somebody in a DNI role, we sit on our equity partner compensation, we sit on the executive committee, we sit on partnership advancement, we sit on associate evaluations. The lens is there, right? DNI uh, DI is at the table for key decisions, key moments in somebody's career, somebody's growth. The education pillar we have our monthly speaker series where we bring in Uh, speakers to talk about more holistic, broader societal topics. So like some examples, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about the 1619 Project. We had Isabel Wilkerson talking about caste. The reason we do this is that when we eventually talk about the DNI bread and butter, we want people to understand how this all happened, right? Um, Why we are here Broaden your mind to sort of historical context, right? So that way people have when we finally get into that bread and butter of it, people kind of know why we're here. We do the bread and butter DNI trainings. I mentioned one earlier. We also do what we call pivot point training. So again, prior to key trajectory moments in an attorney's career, whether that's partnership promotion process or evaluation process or recruiting process or compensation, we we include a pivot point training to help. Uh, prepare the people that are involved in that process to think about this, to mitigate bias in the way they're thinking about this, to disrupt each other. We allow all of our teams in these sorts of settings to throw up what we call DNI flags at any point, and you have an unlimited number of flags that you can throw up to cre- to to create an intentional pause in the conversation to people address DNI issues. So that's something that our training sort of allows for people to do. And then the engagement pillar. So we have a client engagement committee that focuses on how do we collaborate around the shared commitment with our clients one of the initiatives of that committee is we host these DNI client summits where we bring clients together to talk about these issues and talk about the levers that clients have in being able to help move the needle on a lot of the work that we do also within the engagement pillar we have things like our supplier diversity program right where we look at the vendors that the firm uses to ensure that we are hitting, trying to hit particular goals when it comes to minority-owned, women-owned businesses, to you know ensure that where we spend money, we're able to spend it in a way again that's equitable. Like I said, like we cut these four pillars across the way we operationally run the firm, and we put our money where our mouth is. Right, we have a D&R billable credit policy that allows people to bill their time, accounts as you know sort of commercial billable time with a particular cap, right? But we allow, we value that time. We want people to do it, and we don't want that work we know right to some degree that their work does fall on disproportionately fall on people of color and other traditionally underrepresented groups that shouldn't be for free right it shouldn't be and so we value it and value the contributions that people make to the firm
2: this is amazing i'm so glad i'm so glad you shared all of this and there's even little points that you brought up that i'm just going to highlight one and then i promise we'll end it you mentioned that you you go to the managing partner that's who you report to why is that significant? It
1: is extremely important to have a reporting structure where you're reporting to the final and ultimate sort of decision maker on how the firm is op- it operates. And it's not just like, it's, it's beyond reporting. I will say like we, we literally talk at least every week, if not multiple times a week, and we are looped in on a lot of different conversations that from maybe a, a layman's point of view, do not touch on D and I but we know do, and so there's automatically like this assumption of inclusion in the work that we're doing. And also being in the C-suite, it's not about title, right? But it's about the weight that that holds in the institution.
2: Exactly. And
1: what I, I, not me personally, but me in this role can do because of the way that I'm situated. You have to use that power to wield change.
2: Thank you so much. This is not the end of this conversation. This is not the end of this relationship. I have to tell you, Yusuf, I just want to bring you back. I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back to talk about some of these other issues that were raised in this. But thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for dropping all these gems and sharing with us. And thank you for being a supporter of us. You were one of the first... People who, when we when we launched that first episode, reached out immediately, and you know, we've gotten lots more since since. But you are one of the first, so we have a special place in our hearts for you. And thank you for everything. Thanks for being here. Thank you. That's that's all I can say. Thank you.
1: And I want to just thank you all too. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for elevating these conversations. Thank you for having me here today. And I am more than happy to to drop in anytime.
2: Oh, great! We're, we're definitely everyone heard it. We have witnesses. He's coming back. (laughs) He's coming back. (laughs) Thank you, Yusuf. That was perfect. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.